Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when you call us, we are but dry bones, but through the ministration of your Son and the Holy Spirit, you have made us life and you draw us closer to you. May we remember that it is through you that we have life and that in that we may glorify you in all we do. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I think we're probably all familiar with Ezekiel 37 as we've read it time and again as we travel closer and closer to the cross at Eastertide, or at, uh, during Holy Week, rather. But we get it yet again this morning, and before we really dive in, we have to understand the backstory of what is happening here. And to understand the backstory, we have to rewind not a few years, but several hundred years, perhaps even to Abraham the patriarch. For Abraham was just a small family who was called by God. Abraham called him, Abraham was called by God, and though he was quite old when he was called, he was not, he was not alone. God called this seemingly insignificant man to be his own, and he makes a promise to Abraham and says to Abraham, out of you I will make a great nation, and not only that, that nation will be a blessing to many. This is the promise which he gives to Abraham. And we see this interesting intimacy between Abraham and his offsprings as God shepherds them throughout the Middle East, into Egypt, and finally out of Egypt. And then an interesting thing happens. His people, Abraham's offspring, who are now known as Israel, want a king. And they say to God, Give us a king like the nations around us. And it's a logical thing for them to want, for they're a little tiny country amidst these giant countries. And they say, we want a king to represent us. And God says, but I am your king. And they say, no, no, we want a king. And so God says, fine, I will give you a king. And first he appoints Saul, and that, well, that does not go very well. And then David, he rises up, and that goes slightly better, but still not all that well. And that is the story of the kings, and they get worse and worse and worse. The nation splits, and there are two kings, and both kings are not very good. And God says, and God warns these people, your kings and you yourselves are rebelling against me, repent. And he warns them through the prophets again and again until we get to Isaiah. And he says, unless you repent, you'll go into exile. And they don't repent. And we get to Jeremiah, and they're on their way into exile. And then we get to Ezekiel, and they're in exile. Ezekiel himself is thought to have been one of the first people to have gone into exile from the kingdom of Judah. But Israel's story is a microcosm of the story of humanity. And for that, we have to rewind even further than Abraham to really understand. 
For God created man and woman. God created humanity that we would dwell with God, that we would walk with God and know him intimately and be known by him intimately. But the first man and woman, that is Adam and Eve, decided that they would rebel against God. And of course, we know that story well as well, as they take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying, we want this knowledge not through God, but by our own devices. They rebel against him. And with that act of rebellion, death enters into the world. Not only death, but they're kicked out of that perfect place which God has made for us. They're kicked out into exile, away from the tree of life and into the world at large. And then death follows them and death follows us. And we rebel against God again and again. But there's hope for God promised redemption both to Adam and Eve, but also to Israel. And that promise of redemption is the promise which we read this morning. That God will not leave his people, but God will pursue them and God will redeem them. And so we get to this wild vision of the valley of dry bones. And in the valley of dry bones, there is no life. God invites Ezekiel to explore and examine the valley of dry bones. And as he's doing it, he says not only are they dry, but they are very dry. What a vivid picture we are given of this place. And this is our spiritual state without Christ. Without Christ, we are very dry. Yes, alive in one sense, but dead in another as many of you know, Julie and I bought this little house, and it's, it's a cute little house, and I love it, but there's lots of stuff that was left behind, and there's been some really fun finds. One of the things I've found is a really old, like, gigantic turntable that still works, which is really exciting, but another thing that I found are a couple of skulls. Julie doesn't like the skulls, but I think they're the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and there's, there's something fascinating about skulls, aren't there? They're not human skulls, by the way, just so we're super duper clear. They're, the, the one that, that intrigues me most is what I think is a cow skull that's kind of hanging up in the back of the, the old workshop. And it's been like eaten, you know, they do the thing where they get all the flesh off of it and then they bleach it. And... And that's what we're, when we think of the valley of dry bones, think of that, of that skull that's perfectly white, perfectly dried over time. And, you know, if I brought that skull in and I was like, could this skull ever be part of an animal and live again? Your answer would be no. And God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And the answer is no, of course not. They're, they're dead. They're dried up. But Ezekiel has seen God work, even in exile, has seen God work. And he doesn't say no. He says, God, you know what can happen. 
Ezekiel knows that there is no such thing as a hopeless case with God. And perhaps we've had those friends that were finally like, this person's never going to get their life together. This person's never going to know Jesus. This person is just a mess. They're hopeless, and we write them off. But God, there is no hopeless case with God. God can make any man or woman he so chooses to be alive. God can breathe life in to whatever situation there is. And so with God, there is no such thing as a hopeless case. And so when we have that friend or acquaintance or know that person, our call is not to write them off, but to say, God, you know that you can make this person alive. And we pray for them again and again and again. We become that widow in the Gospels who nags the judge over and over and over again, never giving up until the judge hears her case. But God is not like the unempathetic judge. God is good and knows each person, knows each of you. And God can make us alive. We get to verse 4 and 5 in this passage, which reads as follows. He says, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. And what is the word of the Lord? Is it this book which we read out of devotion? Or is it more than that? If we read it in light of John 1, we learn that Jesus himself is the word of the Lord. Jesus himself makes these dry bones to hear him. And then he says, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. In the resurrection narrative, which we read this morning in Ezekiel 37, the Trinity acts to reanimate the bones in the valley. The word is heard by the bones and believe, and the Spirit itself gives them life. It's interesting, as we read through this again and again and again, we hear three different words. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of man, and the wind. The breath of God, the Spirit of God, and the, breath and the wind. And each of these are the same words, but we don't have a word in our language to really capture the depth and breadth of it. But ultimately, it is the Spirit of God working to make these bones come alive. Just as the Trinity acts in our salvation to make us alive, the Father ordains it. Christ on the crucifixion makes it possible, and the Holy Spirit gives us life. The Trinity acts to make you and I spiritually alive as God the Father calls to us and says, Hear my Son and believe on him. And Christ makes it possible in his death and in his resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit comes. In just a few weeks later on this month, we will celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, which is the celebration in which we remember that Jesus gave the Spirit to his church, 
to make each and every one of us alive, to bind us together to be our comfort amidst toil for so many different reasons. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives and makes us alive. And then we read on as it reads, So I prophesied, that is Ezekiel, as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. Behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And it looked, and behold, the sinews of them, and the flesh come upon them, and the skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Now you may be thinking, there are many people that I know that are alive that aren't Christian. And or perhaps you're thinking of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve rebelled, and then we say, well, they died. But if we read on, they didn't die. They kept living and living and living for an absurdly long amount of time. And in fact, until the flood, people seemed to have lived for quite some time. And perhaps this is confusing. And there are two kinds of graces. There's what is often called common grace and then saving grace. Jesus describes this when he talks about farmers' fields. And perhaps you can imagine this as you've driven down the highway in the Midwest as a better example, or like the Central Valley of California. And the fields are all ripe and beautiful. And we don't know anything about these farmers. Perhaps they're hardworking, or perhaps they're lazy. Perhaps they're super nice people, or perhaps they're awful people. And the reality is, farm A and farm B that are right next to each other they receive wind, they receive rain, they receive the sun. They receive exactly the same thing regardless of whether the owner of the field is a nice person or a not-so-nice person. Whether the person is righteous or unrighteous, as Christ says. For the rain and the sun fall upon both equally. And that is what's called common grace. Because God didn't see it fit that Adam and Eve should just drop dead right then and there although that was, in fact, the punishment for what they had done. Nor does God see that it's right that we drop dead right there. And we know this. We know people who have done awful things, and we're like, why? Why? Why is this allowed to happen? But there's a certain element of grace that's allowed to continue, to keep humanity going, so God can continue to call to himself his people. But then there's... And we also see this, of course in the fact that people have gifts and skills. We know that there are amazing artists who are total pagans, and we know that there are amazing artists who are Christian. We know that there are doctors who save thousands of life, lives, but are not that great of people. And we know that there are doctors who save lots of lives that are Christian. But God gives gifts and skills to all people. And it's just what we do with them that matters. And it's also that, therefore, why we pray for our sick, regardless of whether they're getting the best medical care. And when they're healed, we give thanks to the Lord, not only for the doctor, but the fact that he, may, he healed that person. There is grace 
that life perseveres, and there is grace in the fact that we have skilled people in this world. But then there's saving grace, and this is kind of what we see a reflection of in this passage this morning. For the bones come alive, and they're kind of standing there like, like, okay, it's very odd. And then the Spirit of the Lord is blown into them. The Spirit of the Lord makes them alive and allows them to live. Saving grace makes us alive. And then through the Holy Spirit, we get graces that help us to grow. Graces to sanctify us. Graces to draw us closer and closer to Christ. Graces when we come together in fellowship. Graces when we come to his holy table. Graces to know him more intimately each and every day. The passage ends with a promise of redemption. Where the Lord says, I will open your grave and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I, am the, I the Lord, have spoken. And I will do it, declares the Lord. There's this reflection that happens here. For we know that God does, in fact, redeem his people Israel, draws them back out of the grave of of Babylon. And this is to be read as a metaphor. It's not that he'll raise the dead in Babylon, but that he'll bring his people back out from exile and bring them into the promised land. But the exile, as we talked about, is is a vision of the bigger thing, the exile of humanity. The exile of Israel into Babylon is a small image of our exile from the Garden of Eden. And in order to understand this, we have to kind of fast forward, if you will, to the very end, to to Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible. And in this, St. John is receiving this sort of wild vision that people over time have been like, "What what do we do with this? In fact, in, in <laughs> if, if you look at the number of early, early copies of Scripture that we have, we have the most of the Gospels because that helps us to know Jesus. And then the second most of the different epistles, some of the epistles they thought were a little weird, and so we don't have quite as many of that. But we have the very least of the book of Revelation. But yet the book of Revelation tells us the end of the story, that hope which we have. And in it, the angel of the Lord shows to John the following, a river of life, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his face will be on, and his name will be on his forehead, and night will be no more, for they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and lamp, and they will reign forever. The story ends with total 
redemption. The story ends with a people redeemed to God to dwell with him. And this is not just some spiritual vision that John has, but he predicts that the garden will be remade. For in the midst of the garden which was lost was that tree of life. And now in the midst of the eternal city is the tree of life. And man and woman will dwell with God as it was meant to be. All the bad things, all the accursed things will be sent away. And the name of God will be written on their forehead. And before this, the name of evil was written on those foreheads who rebelled against God. But now we will belong to God and we will know him intimately and we will dwell with him. And so this is our hope, that in the end, we will be redeemed to God. In the end, this hope that we have will be fulfilled. In the end, we will be restored from our exile and dwell yet again in the garden with God. And he will be our God, and we will be his people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.